0: Tonight's reading is taken from Revelation chapter three, and it's from verses seven to thirteen, and you'll find that on page one two three five in your Pew Bible if you want to follow. To the Church in Philadelphia To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write These are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David what he opens no one can shut what he shuts no one can open I know your deeds see I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut I know that you have little strength yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name I will make those of you of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews though they are not but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.
1: Thank you for the welcome, Bill. And thank you for uh, all who've taken part in leading us in worship tonight. My maths isn't great, never was great, but I've counted at least 22 in an upfront capacity, although all of us have been participating in worship. So thank you for that. Um, You know, it's terrible when you've got one person doing it all. Though I don't think Bloomfield do it that way anyway. Uh, It's always a pleasure to be in Bloomfield. um, In more recent times, I've been sitting down there from time to time. Uh, and I always benefit, uh, and Anne, my wife, always benefits from the ministry in this place, and always have. So thank you for the opportunity of being here. Now, uh, one of the great things this evening is that I've been given a passage. Um, when I'm asked to preach somewhere, I, it's always difficult to know what to preach on, and it's hard to know, you know, congregations and where they are and all that sort of thing if you're not used to them. But when you're given a passage... It makes it easy. So I've been given the passage this evening and it's Revelation three, seven to thirteen. I guess you've been doing a series in the letters. And here we come to the sixth letter. I don't know whether you've had a map up at any point, I'm sure you have. And um I see Bill nodding. So you've 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 had a map. Those of you who have seen that map, you'll you'll have a rough idea of the the circular nature of these letters. Uh, if you want to start out in the, the bottom left hand corner, if you look at the map at the back of your Bible you 've got Ephesus, and then, as you move north uh, you 've got uh, pergamum sorry you 've Smyrna, and then north of that you 've got Pergamum, and then you move east, you get Thyatira, and then down southeast you get Sardis, and then south and east again to philadelphia and then there 's the one left, Laodicea, which is again further southeast, and you can go right round in the circle so got that sort of thing in your mind. Um, and Philadelphia was southeast of Sardis, about 28 miles as the crow flies. That's about from here to Ballymena, a little less. Now, we might think, you know, there's not a lot of difference between Philadelphia and Sardis and be the same sort of issues. You think of the difference between East Belfast and Ballymena. I've worked in both areas, and there's an enormous difference, totally different cultures and uh, I'm sure it was the same between Philadelphia and Sardis. There's something different about this sixth letter, and I'm sure you've spotted it already. The other six letters all have good things and not so good things to say about the churches in their respective locations. The degree of bad things or difficult things that they have to say varies, Some contain an awful lot of condemnation, for example, the fifth letter, the letter to the church at Sardis, or the fourth one, the letter to the church at Thyatira. Others have less of the bad stuff, but all of them have got some caveats to enter about the state of the church, except this sixth one to the church at Philadelphia. This church is one that doesn't seem to have anything This letter is one that doesn't seem to have anything bad to say about this church. And it's lovely to read something like this about a group of sinners like you and me who are far from perfect. And we know that. We're all sinners. So we know they're far from perfect. But it's lovely to read this about this group of sinners just like us. And yet they seem to be doing the business of living the Christian life right there in the middle of difficulties and challenges. It's just like a breath of fresh air when you read this letter. It's lovely. There are three things about Philadelphia itself that illustrate three key concepts in this letter. The first is that Philadelphia was the gateway to a region called Phrygia. It stood at the place where the borders of three countries, you could say, met. Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. It was a border town, the gateway to Phrygia and the east. It commanded one of the great highways in the world at that time. The road which led from Europe to the east and from the east to Europe. If you head on out through that road to the east, you'll get to Antioch eventually. Beyond Philadelphia to the east lay the wilds of Phrygia and the intention of the founder of Philadelphia in the 2nd century BC was that its function would be to spread the Greek language, the Greek way of life, and the Greek civilization throughout Phrygia and beyond spread the good news about Greek. In other words, it was intended to be the missionary of Greek culture. Which leads to the first key concept in this letter, which is opportunity. Verse 8. There was an open door of opportunity in Philadelphia, an opportunity to bring to others not Greek culture, but Christ and the good news of the gospel. There were many great openings for the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire of the first century, the Pax Romana and all of that, Uh, the Roman roads that allowed folk to go about their business with comparative freedom, speaking the common Greek language, and the same was true for the spread of the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. Even when he was a prisoner in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, Paul wrote Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 to 6, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And I read that, I wonder how many Roman soldiers were on the rota over the two years when Paul was chained to one of them. You know, I don't know whether they worked eight hour shifts, probably not in those days. How many were there in one day? How many were them were there who, who you could add up over those two years? I mean, how often did the duties change around with a new squad on Rota? Was it once a month? Was it once every two months? You know, Can't it just been the same guy all the time? So a whole, whole host of soldiers chained up to Paul. Imagine how many soldiers Paul talked with. how many conversations they overheard as Paul talked with his visitors. How much gospel truth they listened to as Paul dictated his letters. How many questions they were able to ask. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Opportunities tumbling over each other. Opportunities galore. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy at that time. 2 Timothy 2 verses 8 to 10. Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead. Descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering. Even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Opportunity. That's what was before the, the, the Christians in Philadelphia. Opportunity to do what God wants them to do. And what opportunities do you and I have to spread the good news of Jesus by word and deed? There is an open door before us. It's an open door in the first place to just live the life. You know, to walk the walk and talk the talk. Talk. Conversations full of grace, seasoned with salt, deeds and actions that are wise in gospel terms, showing the care and interest and support that neighbors need and colleagues need and friends need and families need because of their circumstances or simply because of our calling To build good, solid, normal friendships with all sorts of folk we come across. Particularly those who have a different world and life view to our own. Opportunities. How many people do we interact with in a week? Such opportunities just to live the Christian life with them. There's also an open door to speak about the good news of Jesus Christ even in the secular age in which we live with all the constraints and difficulties in terms of social policy and moral standpoints, we still live in a free society. We still enjoy freedom of speech, mostly, and we still enjoy many rights that are denied to others in other parts of the world, like freedom to worship and freedom to evangelize and freedom to speak about Jesus. Jesus. Now, the workplace, of course, is is difficult for us. And in every place, we always need to be wise about what we say and how we say it and where and when we say it. But opportunities abound. People ask us questions about all sorts of stuff. You know, we don't even need to take the initiative many times. I mean, no matter what job we have or what profession we follow, we will want to serve Christ through that job or profession. There are some jobs and some professions that just lend themselves to showing the love of Jesus. For example, the caring professions. And there are others that help shape and influence the outlook and opinions of others. For example, education. And there are others that open specific opportunities to talk about Jesus, for example, in many forms of Christian work, including the ministry of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. What about encouraging our young people to consider making career choices in areas such as these? You know, it's usually the parents that put pressure on young people to go for jobs that will earn the most money and provide the most security and lead to a comfortable life. It's not my experience anyway. It's not generally young people who think like that. It's the generation above them. What about us encouraging our young people in the right way so they don't feel they've got to work around all of that? And what about the opportunity of career breaks? I have four in my family. One of them, uh, one of my daughters, Heather, has had a total now, she's a nurse at, at the Ulster Hospital in the Reno unit, she's had a total now of five years of career breaks in South Sudan. I don't think she'll get any more, so she's going to give her job up and she's going to go again with Medair as the organisation that she works with. It's really in development and emergency help and so on. And she's going to go to, to Jordan to work with Syrian refugees. I, I'm a no over. Don't mind saying this because she's not here. But I really am. Because she thinks outside the box. She's not constrained by what most people do. But she thinks, what gifts have I got? How can I use them? What opportunities are there? Where can I be most useful? What can I do for Jesus? And she's a real challenge to me. And what about those of us who are retired How are we using our retirement? The word retirement, of course, isn't in the Bible. So the call to follow Jesus, including the call to serve him and witness to him, is a lifelong calling. You you simply stop paid employment, but you keep serving Jesus, no matter what it is, what your job has been. You keep serving Jesus and following him. Well, are we doing that in retirement? I'm retired coming up in six years now, which is just incredible. What, what are we doing with that? What opportunities are we seeing? There's loads of opportunities. First time I heard of the Delhi Bible Fellowship was through your former minister, Graham Connor. Graham had hooked in with him. I, I don't know how that happened. Never asked him, but he'd been out there and he talked about it quite a bit. Uh, maybe not here, but he certainly talked to his colleagues about it. Tried to persuade us to get involved as well. I'm too busy, Graham. You know, love to do that. Too busy. I'm not busy now. So for the past four years, five years, I've gone out to help the Delhi Bible Institute to run expository preaching courses. You probably think I've listened to this sermon, I'm the wrong person to be doing that. But courses for pastors across the north of India in different places. I happen to have been in Durudun, which is a lovely place. It's all in Hindi. They don't have a high standard of education, but they love Jesus. They want to serve Jesus. They have amazing stories when you talk to them. But their view of the Bible is all over the place. You know, they believe it's God's word, but they just haven't a clue how to go about teaching it to other people. So it's one little way of trying to help them. Opportunities. Do we we think about the many opportunities God has given us Gives us health and strength if we have the health and strength to be able to serve Him. You don't have to do that and go there, but everywhere, everywhere there are opportunities. Philadelphia was a place where there were opportunities. And quite apart from any of these things, there are many opportunities to support the work of spreading the good news, whether it be support of the local church, or a denominational mission work, or mission agencies, and there are opportunities to support, to support some very strategic work like Sat-7, reaching into homes in Muslim countries where it would just not be possible to go and knock on physical doors. Or opportunities like the translation and distribution of the Bible through the work of the Bible Societies or Wycliffe Bible Translators. The Word of God is not chained. And wherever God's Word is available, the opportunities are there. Opportunity I've placed before you an open door. Second thing about Philadelphia is that it was famous for its vineyards. Now, I was brought up total abstainer and still am. Discovered there's not very many people nowadays who are total abstainers, but that's okay. Um, but I sometimes, especially in the days when I used to ski, Neil will know about this, um, sometimes when you're up on the slopes and people are drinking blue vine, you think, oh, that's a gorgeous smell. I just love some of that. Actually, I broke my vow in the Church of Ireland once because of the communion wine that was there, but there we are. Famous for its vineyards. It lay on the edge of a great plain, which was one of the most fertile areas of the world, famous for growing grapes. Not unnaturally, her principal god was Dionysius, the Greek god of wine and ecstasy. And since the grape gave Philadelphia so much prosperity, it was natural that it should worship the god of the grape. Other gods were worshipped as well. In fact, Philadelphia had so many gods and temples that sometimes she was called little Athens. And this leads to the second key concept, which is authority. Got opportunity, authority. Verse 7 and verses 9 to 10. The question here is, who's in charge? Who holds the keys? Who's in charge in Philadelphia? Is it Dionysius or one of the many other gods? And if it isn't one of them, who is it? Now, the church in Philadelphia is weak. Verse 8, I know that you have little strength. Perhaps it's small. Perhaps it's composed largely of the lower classes of society with little influence. Yet they are faithful to Jesus and his word. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. They have persevered despite many, many difficulties. And there is opposition, verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. These people give them trouble. And there will be opposition, verse 10, in the future. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. But none of this is to deter them. For the opposition is limited in what it can do. Verse 9, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. But above all, Jesus Christ holds the keys and opens the doors. Verse 7, these are the words of him that is holy and true. Just in passing, notice that this is a title that the Lord God himself gave in the Old Testament. And here in the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus just assumes it naturally is self-consciously divine, these are the words of him that is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. what he opens, no one can shut, what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus Christ is the one who is in charge. He holds the keys, he has all authority. He has opened many doors, and he alone is able to open them, just as when doors close. It is he alone who shuts them. And sometimes we get very concerned when we hear, for example, of missionaries having to leave certain countries or of the work of Christian agencies being closed down. And, of course, it's right to be concerned for the safety of mission personnel and their families and for the safety of national Christians who may have to live and work in dangerous circumstances. But actually, the only one who can shut those doors is God And if he does so, he must have a very good purpose. Even if our little minds can't understand why at the time. China, of course, is the the big illustration of that, isn't it? And what happened there after the missionaries left. So we shouldn't be concerned about the grand scheme of things or think that God doesn't know what he's doing. He knows very well what he's doing. And he works all things according to the good pleasure of his will. I haven't sung that hymn, Mark, for a long time, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, but it just fits that like a glove. God knows very well what he's doing. Jesus Christ is in charge. He is Lord. He has all authority. We have a wee place in um, Port Ballantrae. We've had it for coming up in 23 years. Beautiful part of the country. Uh, on a good day at the north coast you just wouldn't want to be anywhere else it's just stunning up there when the sun shines which it doesn't always but anyway but the salt air is really hard on the paintwork and on the woodwork so a wee while back we decided to replace the guttering and the downspouts and cover the soffits and the barge boards with PVC and to get new doors front and back not wooden anymore which was fine looks really well Good job, and we're really glad that we did it. Except we have a problem with the key of the front door. The new lock on the front door. Sometimes the key sticks in the lock. Okay? The back door key in the lock is fine, but the alarm system entry and exit points are the front door. So you don't want to be going in through the back door, because that's going to wake on a few people. The front door is the one to use, but sometimes the key works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes mine works, but Anne's doesn't. Sometimes hers works, but mine doesn't. Part of the problem is that we had to get a whole bunch of keys for the family, and the more you have, the more likely the keys are to have some weak glitches. Now, if you drive 65 miles somewhere and can't get in late, it doesn't do a whole lot for your equanimity. And it's been known for words to be spoken between Anne and myself. The point is that a key which works is essential. A key in which you have absolute confidence, a key that's going to do the business, a key that you know is going to open the blinking door. Actually, we've discovered a little trick with the key. Somebody told Adam this and I didn't believe it, but it's true. If you rub the lead of a pencil up and down the middle of the key, it works. Now, what's that about? I haven't the faintest idea, but now we keep a pencil in the car. See, so if you've learned nothing else from the sermon, you've learned something tonight. So what is the lesson here? Well, it's about prayer, isn't it? If only God can open and shut doors, and if you and I can't do it, and if no one else can do it, the only thing we can do is pray. Pray for understanding. I think that's what we ought to pray for before we come with the big list. Pray for understanding. Because often we don't understand. We just don't know what God's doing or why things are the way they are. Pray for understanding. Pray for the people caught up in the situation. Pray for the national Christians and the church in that situation. Pray for mission. Pray for opportunities. Pray for open doors. Pray for open minds. Pray for open hearts. Pray for open wills. Do whatever God may be asking us to do. Pray for specific mission partners. Pray for the mission of the church. Use the resources available. Delighted to hear them being used tonight. PCI Mission in Ireland, prayer focus. PCI Global Mission, prayer focus. Operation World. You know, there's so much opportunity, an open door for mission, authority. Christ is in charge. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's got the keys. And he says, why don't you just talk to me? Listen to me. Talk with me. Take on board what I'm saying. Do what I want you to do. And just spread all your requests out in front of me. And leave them with me. And I'll do the very best thing for everybody. The third thing about Philadelphia is that it is in an earthquake zone. The Great Plain, which grew such great grapes and produced such great wines, was a dangerous place where life at times could be uncertain. Uh, It was a volcanic area subject to earth tremors and earthquakes. In AD 17, the town was devastated and it was only rebuilt because of a generous contribution from Tiberius, the Roman Emperor, which leads us to the third key concept, security, verses 10 to 13. People at Philadelphia lived an unsettled, uncertain, fearful life. I'm sure you, you, you saw the scenes in television more, more, on more occasions than, than we would have liked of the earthquakes in Italy. I mean, don't think of Italy sometimes has been a place that's subject to earthquakes, but that central spine does seem to have that problem. How many have there been in recent months and the devastation it causes? Well, the people in Philadelphia were always going out and coming in, fleeing and returning. There was a frightened rhythm to their lives of flight and return, very unsettling. Look at the middle of verse 12. Christ says, you won't ever have to leave God's place. Never again will he leave it. Now you put yourself in in the context of the church at Philadelphia, one of the people in the church there. Isn't that absolutely brilliant? Never again will he leave it. Security at last. Look at verse 10. I will keep you. Look at verse twelve. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He will be stable, immovable, secure. Now, these these people have not had life easy. You know, they've they've had to persevere through difficulties from people who, who, whom John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls the synagogue of Satan. Christ calls them that. They're liars. They've caused enormous problems for the Christians at at, at, uh, Philadelphia. There's, there's, There's just been so many difficulties that we don't know all the details of it. But they've had to persevere through that. And they have persevered, and they haven't denied his name. They've been faithful. And now, because they have been faithful, God promises to them. One of the things about, um, that I've discovered through these visits to North India is that the Christians there face persecution. I, I had no idea that in India there was such persecution. I had absolutely no idea. You know, you think persecution, you think of places like North Korea. A um, generation ago, we'd have thought of communist countries. We think of Muslim countries. I'd never really considered that India was a place where there was persecution of Christians, but boy, is it rife really rife and many of those those pastors who come together for those courses they have been through the fire many of them have suffered for their faith some of them put out of their families Hindu families some of them have been in prison many of them beaten and it costs to be a Christian in a culture like that very militant Hindu culture and you know the government of, of India now, the national government of the BJP party that heads it up, which is a Hindu party, which promotes Hindu values. And when you're out in the sticks in the rural parts of the country, no matter how sophisticated it may be in the towns and cities, when you're out in the sticks, you suffer if you're a Christian, especially if you're a leader in the church. And yet those, those Christians have got... A lovely peace about them and a contentment of spirit that they're doing what God wants them to do. They have persevered and they will persevere. They know that God is with them. God gives them this sense of security and peace and not just a sense of it. They're confident in Christ. There are three inscriptions on the pillar, three names, the name of God Himself. The name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which is the church, church triumphant. And Christ's new name. Three names inscribed on the pillar. And it's almost as if he's saying to them, look, you are totally and utterly secure because my name is on you. And here's something else. You are totally and utterly secure, not only because my name is on you, but you're part of my church, my people. And here's something else. You're not only secure of those because of those two things, but you're secure also because Christ's name is on you. I mean, it's just over and above, isn't it? What could be more appropriate to the Christians in Philadelphia? If we hold on to what we have in Christ, we will be as secure as massive pillars in God's kingdom forever, marked and identified forever as one of God's own family, one of God's true church, one of Christ's adopted brothers and sisters, and it can be true for all of us as well. It's the whole subject of assurance, actually, It's tucked in here. And I wonder how that sits with you. Christ wants his children to be sure, to be sure that we are his, to have confidence in him, not to be concerned that we may not be his because... I missed my quiet time last week. Because that's the level of some of it. Christ wants us to be sure. He wants us to have that peace and confidence that come from knowing that it all depends on Jesus and not on us. And I wonder whether this evening we have assurance in Christ, assurance of salvation because we have committed our lives to him in faith and in penitence, Assurance of his presence with us, that he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Assurance that he walks before us and behind us and around us, with us. Or do you have a doubt about that? God doesn't want us to doubt those things. He wants us to be absolutely sure. And one day he will bring us safely to be with him. What a day that will be. We can't begin to imagine it. You know, the Bible tries to describe bits and pieces of it, but it doesn't come near. You know, it's just trying to stir us a little bit in our imagination. What a day it will be when we are with Jesus, when we see all the other children of Jesus who have his name on them, God's name on them, the church's mark on them, all together praising and exalting our Savior, serving him. Busy about his business and the new creation. I hope you have an assurance about that. Because the best is yet to be. What we have discovered up to this point about our God is only a fraction of what we have yet to discover. This is a great wee letter. And I've, I've just skipped over the surface. There's a lot of stuff in here that I haven't even mentioned. But he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, help us as we think about your word just to meditate around it and particularly what it says about Jesus and about the riches that we have in him so that we may love you and serve you and be yours for whatever you want for his glory. And his name's sake. Amen. Join together in the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, evermore.